This is KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits, and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Welcome to the Ecology Hour and this special series, The Fish Files. The fish are out there. I am the host, Anna Halligan. It is the last week of October, which generally marks the end of the dry season, a time when outdoor work activities like restoration come to a close. As such, I'd like to share a brief summary of some of the restoration work that I have known to occur in Mendocino County over the course of the summer. The Nature Conservancy completed its second implementation phase of the Lower Ten Mile River Salmon Habitat Enhancement Project. This project has the long-term goal to improve salmon habitat in the lower 1.7 miles of the South Fork Ten Mile River and four and a half miles of the Main Stem Ten Mile River. Also, our partners at the Mendocino Land Trust and the California Conservation Corps installed wood to improve in-stream habitat in Hare Creek, and the California Conservation Corps completed four additional wood enhancement projects in James Creek, East Branch North Fork Big River, North Fork Big River upstream of James Creek, and they also installed a few features on the Albion River. The Conservation Fund completed the Inman Creek Sediment Reduction Project, which resulted in the decommissioning of approximately 1.6 miles of road and associated crossings, and that will result in approximately 2,000 cubic yards of future sediment savings in the Garcia. Also, Pacific Watershed Associates is implementing the Stewart Creek Sediment Reduction Project on the Conservation Fund's Wallala River Forest as part of the Mendocino Coast Total Maximum Daily Load Implementation Program, which I believe is tied to the local Mendocino Coast RCD. And finally, Trout Unlimited with the support of private landowners, a myriad of funders, partners like State Parks, the Skunk Train, Lime Redwood Forest Company, Redwood Forest Foundation, Mendocino Redwood Company, and the Mendocino RCD, as well as Chris Blinko, Ken Smith, and Pacific Watershed Associates, um, implemented 11 restoration projects which comprise of two fish passage projects in the Noyo, one fish passage project in a tributary to Big River, six large wood enhancement projects in the Navarro, Noyo, and South Fork Eel tributaries, and two sediment reduction projects in the South Fork Eel and USAL watersheds. The end of October is a time when restorationists have to button up their work for the year and typically trade in their work boots for waders. However, this year, the forecast isn't showing any signs of significant rainfall in the near future. According to NOAA, the three-month-long-range outlook predicts below-normal precipitation for southern Mendocino and Lake Counties in November, December, and January. This is likely due to the La Nina, which is predicted to continue through the northern hemisphere um, during the 2020-2021 winter. Lack of rain and delayed rains have significant impacts on salmon and steelhead populations. Tonight, I interview Sea Grant Extension Specialist Mariska Obazinski, who leads the Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program. And we discuss how this monitoring effort helps link science with species recovery. For more than a decade, the California Sea Grant's Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program at the University of California has been monitoring salmon and steelhead populations within the Russian River watershed to provide science-based information to everyone involved in the recovery of these species. The program is tied to the Russian River Coho Salmon Captive Broodstock Program, the Statewide Coastal Monitoring Program, the Russian River Coho Water Resources Partnership, and other recovery efforts throughout the watershed. And just as a note to the listeners, this interview was pre-recorded, so I won't be able to take any calls. I appreciate you joining us today because um, I've really been in awe of the work that you and your program have been um, taking on for the last 
decade in the Russian River. And in particular, I think your group does a really excellent job of um, kind of reaching out to the public and communicating on what you're seeing on the ground. And so I thought maybe we could just start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Sea Grant's Russian River Monitoring Program and how you became involved with it? Like, how did it originate and, and how did you get involved? Um, yeah, sure. Um, our program started back in 2004, and really it, it, it initiated um, with, uh, with some monitoring for the Russian River Coho Salmon Captive Broodstock Program. You know, I think um, the, there were a number of agencies and, um, and California Sea Grant um, kind of recognized the need that if, you know, if there was going to be, um, you know, a conservation hap- hatchery program, um, there was a need for some monitoring to help understand whether it was working and help provide, you know, information to guide adaptive management. And so in 2004, um, they hired me to start this monitoring program. And it's grown over the last um, 16 years. And, and really, um, our goal is, you know, to collect um, monitoring data and conduct research in support of salmon and steelhead recovery. And so, you know, we're, we're out there collecting data, but one of our primary goals is to make sure that data gets out to all of the different partners working on salmon and steelhead recovery. It doesn't do any good to be buried in reports on the shelf. We want to get it out there and make it accessible um, so that we can make a difference and, and, you know, recover these populations of fish. Yeah, and, and actually I was just realizing, like, there's a lot of names that um, are tied to your program that maybe some of our listeners aren't completely familiar with. So would you mind just kind of quickly explaining, like, what Sea Grant is first? Yeah, it is. It, it's, a, it's complicated. So. California Sea Grant um, is a collaboration between NOAA, the state of California, and universities um, in California um, to create knowledge and products and services that benefit the economy and the environment and the people of California. Um, Within California Sea Grant, there's an extension program. Um, So I'm one of um, many extension specialists placed along the coast of California um, that's working with coastal communities to address natural resource issues by doing applied research and um, getting that information out to stakeholders and the public. Um, so my program in particular focuses on salmon recovery. And, and so you also just mentioned the, the Russian River Captive Broodstock Program, which is a conservation hatchery. And we have talked about this briefly, but not in any great detail in previous episodes. So could you talk a little bit about the Russian River Captive Broodstock Program and what a conservation hatchery is? Yeah, I'll, I'll start by just... Um, giving a little background on the broodstock program. So in the late 90s, it became pretty clear that the coho populations in the Russian were just really critically low, less than 10 adults returning where there used to be, you know, most likely thousands of fish returning. Um, Even though there was a lot of work being done to improve habitat in a lot of the Russian River tributaries, the rate of um, the habitat enhancement work wasn't fast enough to prevent these fish from just totally disappearing from the watershed. Um, And at that point, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, National Marine Fisheries Service, they um, approached the Army Corps, which runs the fish hatchery at Warm Springs Dam, to start a conservation hatchery program, the Russian River Coho Salmon Captive Broodstock Program. Um, the goal of this, this conservation hatchery program is to help restore coho populations to a point where they can sustain themselves and the hatchery is no longer needed. Um, initially, some of the last remaining fish from the wild really, you know, there were only two streams that had fish in any number. Some, some juveniles from those two streams were brought to the hatchery, raised to the adult stage, 
and then spawned. And then their offspring were released out into tributaries of the Russian. One of the, the biggest concerns when populations get to these extremely low levels is the loss of genetic diversity. So in this program, all of the broodstock um, adults are, that are spawned are genotypes. And then there's this whole spawning matrix that helps um, just maximize genetic diversity. And then, you know, another component of that going forward is, you know, to bring in wild genes from juveniles in the future. So like now, today, wild juveniles um, are, are con- they're continuing to capture wild juveniles from streams and bring them back to the hatchery to incorporate them into that spawning matrix. Um, so I think, I don't know, hatcheries um, a lot of times get a bad rap, and that's not without good reason. You know, there's studies showing that the fitness of fish in the hatchery can go downhill pretty quickly um, just because of artificial selection. Um, and stalking fish has been shown in some cases to, to really have a bad, bad impact on the wild population. I know for myself, like coming into, you know, the program I'm involved with, I had reservations about, you know, hatcheries. You know, my, my experience was with hatcheries was, you know, in a, a native rainbow trout stream, you know, brook trout, you know, giant oversized brook trout with eroded fins, you know, not native to the watershed being stocked on top of these wild populations. Um, so I, I didn't have a good view of hatcheries. Um, but I think it's really important to, to understand that not all hatchery programs are the same. A conservation hatchery, um, th- those programs are designed to basically rescue a population from extinction and help bring that population back to the point where we don't need the hatchery anymore. In a way, I see this as just, just a, a tool for buying time so that we can go in and do all the habitat enhancement work that we need to do to support the fish so they can complete their life cycles on their own. Um, it's, hatchery augmentation is, is not something you want to take lightly. It's not an answer in and itself. Um, but I think in, in some extreme situations, like with the Russian, it's just a really important component of a recovery program. I have no doubt um, that if the captive broodstock program, you know, never happened in the Russian, we wouldn't have coho there today. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up the, about, you know, kind of the differences between a conservation hatchery and a traditional hatchery. And like an, an organization like mine, Child Unlimited, like a lot of the kind of outreach and communication that we've given to our members is, you know, to eat wild fish, to not, not to support hatcheries. You know, I think, um, as you mentioned, like that bad reputation to some extent has been perpetuated by conservation groups like ours, but, but there is a distinction between just growing fish so that for, for just for the purposes of, of, of increasing numbers and, and for recreation or commercial reasons and growing fish for recovery. And, and you're right, like with all the tools that we have for recovering a species, we are going to have to rely in some areas um, on these conservation hatcheries whether it's to do what was done in the Russian and to keep an entire population from just, you know, no longer existing, or whether it's working within an existing population that does have annual wild returns, but maybe the genetics aren't diverse enough for that population to survive like a big event, like a drought or a fire or um, some kind of disease that might be introduced to that population. So they're really important, but they're expensive and it's complex. And I think really understanding the science is going to be integral to all of the um, people that are working to recover coho in California um, because we can't do it everywhere. So, I, and, and I feel like we, 
you know, a lot of the work that's being done in the Russian, the science that's going into that is going to help everyone who's trying to recover this species in making wise decisions about supplementation. Yeah, I think it, it, these are just bringing up some really challenging questions. And one of the big ones is when, when is it, you know, when is the time to, you know, start a, a conservation hatchery program in a population? You know, there, there's some unanswered questions there. And, and we are, um, we're, we're starting to look at some of the, you know, results of the, the Russian River program. You know, early, a few years ago, the Russian River program had to decide, you know, we, the initial program had, um, was using only um, broodstock from the Russian River itself, just those two last tributaries. Um, and, you know, it, it turned out, you know, genetically that wasn't enough. We were seeing some negative effects of um, loss of genetic diversity. And so the program had to make a tough decision. And what they decided to do was to do some outbreeding with some um, fish um, collected from the Lagunitas watershed, you know, so it was a neighboring stream, but it was going without, you know, it was going outside of the Russian. And so um, we're now, because we collected data and tracked some of those um, different genetic cross types, um, we're pulling that data together now with a postdoc um, from Stephanie Carlson's lab, Casey Pregler, you know, she's pulling together some of that data, um, looking at the genetics, tracking some early life stage um, traits in the hatchery. And then we're, we've been, tra we tracked some of those cross types in the, in the wild. So we're bringing some of that data together to help inform that really hard question. You know, when is it time to, you know, start a conservation hatchery program and introduce, you know, that component to the recovery of, of a population? So I'm sure for you as a researcher, it's probably doubly interesting to be working in this watershed where, um, you know, you are actively monitoring the, the um, current populations of fish, but there's also this kind of extra additional kind of um, component to the research that's tied to, the, to, to that program. We've learned a tremendous amount from this program. You know, I think... Um, We've been stocking fish for, you know, over 15 years now. Um, we're, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing fish survive, that get stocked out, survive through the winter. They're migrating out as, you know, tens of thousands of fish are migrating out as smolts. We're seeing adults returning. Um, we're seeing, you know, the population went from, you know, fewer than 10 adults returning each year, um, to, you know, an average of about 500 adults returning each year. Um, what, we're, what we're not seeing is we're seeing things kind of level out. You know, we're, the, the hatchery is releasing, you know, approximately 200,000 juveniles each year. That's about the maximum it can produce. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing that kind of level out. What we're finding is that the next generation isn't able to complete its life cycle um, independently. And so I think um, one of the biggest values um, that, that this program, you know, this conservation hatchery program has provided is just helping us identify where the bottlenecks are. You know, we have when you don't have any fish coming back and you have a whole suite of a million different problems that could be, you know, going wrong in, you know, the incredibly complex life cycle of the salmon, um, by having this population of um, hatchery fish that you can tag and track and, and monitor, um, it's really helped us identify, you know, where, you know, at what life stage the issues are occurring and what, you know, um, where in terms of like what specific streams are we seeing, you know, more success than others. So it's, it's really, um, it, it's really providing um, a, a tremendous um, support for just like the larger restoration and recovery community, you know, without knowing like there's there's not an unlimited um, amount of resources out to address all of the habitat um, 
problems that, you know, need to be addressed. And so, you know, if we can identify the most important ones and, and kind of guide where that work um, happens and provide justification for um, doing projects, um, I think, you know, collectively we're all going to, um, you know, just be better equipped to um, restore these populations. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a good point. Like from, from I mean, it, a lot of our coastal monitoring um, programs, it's, they don't get that opportunity to like know exactly how many juvenile fish were released and then be able to compare that to how many returns there are and then be able to look again at that next cycle to see how many fish were produced from those returns because you can't get every fish, you know, and I'm sure you probably deal with challenges like that in your monitoring too, but, but having that source number is so valuable, but I'm curious, you, you mentioned that um, it's been, it's been advantageous because you've been able to kind of identify where there are bottlenecks. So where are the bottlenecks in the Russian? Um, is it a particular life stage? Is there a certain habitat feature that's lacking? That's probably multiple factors. <laughs> but what are you? What have you learned? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's multiple factors, um, but I think one of the big ones that we've um, that we've you know identified and, and focused on is is low stream flow. Um, you know, we're seeing um, just massive extents of these streams um, dry out during the summer season and, and coho salmon need to spend a full year in fresh water up in the headwater, you know, tributaries of systems like the Russian River watershed. And so, you know, without water, um, they, you know, they're not going to be able to complete their life cycle on their own. Um, and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing more frequent drought, more extreme drought, um, flashier um, storms in the winter. So, like, another area that we, you know, that's where we're seeing issues um, is that early life stage survival. So, you know, we're, we're seeing adults come back and spawn, but then, you know, with our monitoring, we, we do spawner surveys, so we're counting adults in the stream and their reds. Um, in the, you know, in the stream bed. Um, and then, then sort of our next check on the population is going out and doing snorkel surveys during the summer. So we're, um, we're counting how many juveniles um, resulted from the spawning that occurred the previous winter. And we're not seeing nearly as many juveniles in the stream um, as you might expect given the number of adults that we're seeing spawning. And so, we suspect that there's some um, just high mortality, you know, likely due to, you know, these extreme storms that we sometimes see, you know, if they happen after, you know, at, at critical times when the, you know, the eggs are in the gravel, um, the elvins are, you know, um, still in the gravel or, you know, they're hatching out. If, if we have really massive storms that's moving a lot of sediment, and, and scouring out reds, you know, um, that that's likely a, a big problem as well. We haven't been able to be as quantitative about that, but, you know, just the fact that we're seeing very, you know, few juveniles in the summer as compared to the spawning, it's, it's kind of an indicator that there's a problem there as well. Yeah. This past year is sadly probably a perfect example of, um, of how weather events are impacting salmon populations because, as I'm sure you are well aware and recall, you know, we, we didn't get as much um, rainfall as we would in a typical year. I know in Mendocino County, on average, we're about 55% of our um, average rainfall, and that's like 55% of average rainfall over the last 10 years. Th then... So, so we didn't get a lot of rain overall, but we did get some pretty heavy storms in April. And so um, I would imagine in that instance, you have 
that big storm event coming through early when these juvenile fish are small and um, just trying to kind of get a hold on this new aquatic world that they're living in. And then that's compounded by the fact that there wasn't enough rainfall. And so now you have less water available throughout the summer um, during the low flow season. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you um, are witnessing in the field this past summer with regards to stream flow, because um, it is a drought year. We're looking at a forecast that is going to continue to extend drought conditions potentially through the whole next um, winter and spring. So, you know, maybe, maybe this question is two parts. One is what are you seeing now? And then based on some of the forecast for the upcoming year, what, you know, how does that, what do you think that will result in, in for the summer of 2021? Like how will that impact conditions further? So, um, so yeah, I'll start back with um, this past winter. So we didn't have, like you said, we didn't have as much rain this past winter. Um, that actually turned out to probably be, in terms of adult spawning last winter, at least in the Russian River watershed, that, that seemed to be not a bad thing. You know, we didn't have any massive storms that, you know, were on the order that would scour reds out. So we actually had... Um, a really good spawning year last winter. And that translated into um, really the highest number of juvenile young of the year coho um, in, in the streams this summer. So we go out, we do our snorkeling surveys in, in June and July for the most part, and we saw more juveniles than we've ever seen. Um, but the, the downside of not having, you know, as much rain is we're seeing um, really, really bad drought conditions in the streams this summer. Um, you know, I, um, you know, we sort of compare things to the 2014-15, you know, drought years, and we're seeing um, those same really, really bad drought conditions this year, and, and in some cases even worse than those years. So, you know, we're just seeing massive expanses of the stream dry out. You know, we, we partner, um, we help Department of Fish and Wildlife with um, some fish rescues, you know, um, moving some fish into, like, relocating fish into places that we know are going to go dry. We, we help them relocate these fish into places that we know have you know, in, in previous droughts remained wet. Um, we're seeing, we're now starting to see those places, you know, like our last remaining, you know, wet stretches of Creek, um, are starting to go dry too. So it's, it's really, um, it's really not, not a good situation out there. And it's like, you know, it's even more heartbreaking because it was like one of the best years in terms of the juvenile population. So they're just getting hit really hard. Um, and then coming up, um, you know, we used to think of low flow as, as primarily being an issue, you know, during the summer season and impacting the juveniles. But we're starting to see these low flow issues um, impact the, the population at other life stages as well. So, um, you know, the, the juvenile coho spend a year, the first year and a half of their lives, like in the stream, and then they migrate out. Um, you know, the, the typical migration window for migrating out to the ocean as smolt is between March and June. Um, we're seeing in some years, this one included, we're seeing that the streams are becoming disconnected. The tributary streams are becoming disconnected from the Russian River um, in the spring during that smolt out migration period. And so, you know, if that happens really early during that migration window, you can wipe out a whole year class just by, you know, having that that passage blocked. Um, so if we don't get, you know, those spring rains, um, it's it's just it's bad news for the smolts getting out, and then it's also, you know, it's it's going to mean a really bad summer for the the next generation rearing in the streams. And the, the other thing, you know, that 
that we're seeing um, and that we're worried about right now is, you know, if we don't get rain, um, you know, during the spawning window, then the adults are not going to have access to the spawning grounds. So, um, you, you know, they need to be able to enter the Russian River, but then most of the tributaries of the Russian become disconnected um, during the summer season. Um, and then it's the first big rain that reconnects the strains and allows, you know, that pathway for the fish to get to the, the spawning grounds. And so if we don't get that rain when the fish are ready to spawn, it can, you know, that's another way you can just sort of wipe out a whole year class. Um, we had a, a really extreme situation. I think it was 2013, 14, where we didn't get rain until February. And the, the coho spawning window is, you know, the peak of it is December and January. And so we saw fish, they were able to come into the Russian river, but they couldn't access the spawning ground until February. So some of these fish were sitting in the streams, you know, for up to three months um, before they could even access the spawning grounds. And, you know, that, that has a real impact on, you know, um, the success of the next generation. And that year we saw some fish hung on that long and they spawned, but the, the survival um, of, you know, the, the young of the year, the, the next year was terrible. We saw hardly any juveniles that year. You know, I remember seeing videos from that year of what were called zombie coho. Zombie coho, it was in yeah. the Russian. Because, and, yeah. and, you know, for, for, for this is probably old news to some of our listeners, but, you know, coho salmon and other salmon, not steelhead, but um, they're, when they are making their migration to spawn, um, it's literally the last few months of their life. And their bodies are slowly deteriorating. They're putting all of their energy into egg production and spawning. So it is really critical that they get to that spawning ground, those clean gravels, in a timely manner because their bodies are literally breaking down and preparing for the end of life. Um, we also saw this year an impact on our um, small outmigration in Mendocino streams. Um, and it was really concerning for the same reasons. Um, we, and then beyond that, and I'm sure you're probably witnessing this too, is that I feel like the steelhead runs are happening later and later in the year. And so there were actually quite a few adult steelhead that got trapped in, the, in some of our systems because the spring flows were so low that they weren't able to kind of out-migrate after spawning. Um, and I, I've wondered about those adult steelhead a lot <laughs> this summer, some of the steelhead that I was in the Navarro and saw an adult that has was in the main stem after the estuary mouth had closed. And I've wondered about that steelhead throughout the summer and how it's fared. I know um, it's so hard. I remember seeing um, in one of our um, tributaries, this adult steelhead that had gotten trapped and it was just, you know, in this tiny pool and, and it lasted for, I, it, I don't know if it ever made it, but it was, you know, I remember coming across it in, you know, like July or something in this tiny pool. And it was this adult steelhead, just like, you know, just hunkered to probably some like groundwater, you know, source in the pool. And it was just, I was like, Oh, I hope you make it through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I will say, and particularly for steelhead, I am always amazed by that particular fish. Um, so there's, I don't give out a total despair. Like, so if any fish can make no, it, they're amazing. I think it's they're going to be a steelhead. Yeah, they're just, they can adapt to so much, but we're definitely pushing the limits for them. Yeah. Well, this is so interesting. So I'm wondering, like, with some of this information that you're collecting, you know, how does that translate to even potential, like, adaptations and modifications to the broodstock program? Um, and, and then to, to, to restoration overall, like, how does the information that you're collecting then um, – 
you know, get relayed into different kinds of management and restoration activities. And it's probably a good point to, to kind of talk a little bit about the Russian River Coho Water Resources Partnership. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, a lot of our work is um, with monitoring and research is, you know, identifying these problems, but, you know, the, the, the real work is, you know, trying to address them. And so um, we've been involved with the Coho Water Resources Partnership um, since it began in, in 2009, and this is a collaborative partnership um, with Trout Unlimited and um, Goldridge and Sonoma RCDs and um, Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. And so we've been working to try to, um, you know, bring all of our, it's a, it's a very multidisciplinary group, you know, where we offer the, you know, the fish biology component, there's hydrologists, there's water rights experts, and then there's, um, you know, the RCDs are um, very involved with landowners and, um, and um, designing, you know, um, water storage projects, rainwater catchments, um, water conservation projects. And so um, the goal of that group is to um, try to help landowners, streamside landowners, um, get the water that they need um, with having the least possible impact on stream flow. Um, and so the information that we've been collecting um, with fish um, combined with some of the work of the hydrologists um, is, is to, to, um, to show like where, um, where the important areas are for fish um, that are flow impaired. So we, um, you know, I, I mentioned that we do a lot of snorkeling surveys. So we map out, um, the densities of fish. When we do our snorkeling surveys, we're um, collecting GPS points so that we can look at where the high concentrations of fish are in these streams. And then during the summer, we also do um, wet dry mapping. So we walk the creeks with um, a GPS unit and we're mapping out, um, you know, in the driest time of year, where is the creek wet and where is it dry? And so by um, bringing this data together, the fish distribution data, you know, where fish are spawning, where we're seeing juveniles, and, and overlaying that with, with um, the wet-dry mapping information, you know, where, where are we seeing flow impairment? Where are the refuges? You know, where are the places in the creeks that stay wet year-round, whether it's a drought or not? So... So we're providing that kind of information to this group to help um, figure out where it makes, you know, the most sense to prioritize doing um, projects to improve stream flow. Um, and then um, another, you know, another um, thing that we've been doing to kind of inform these improving stream flow efforts um, is some research um, to help understand how much water fish need um, to to survive the summer season and um, and not only you know survive but also you know be able to grow and move around and so we've been doing some of that work um, for the Coho Partnership and also um, in partnership with UC Berkeley some students and faculty at UC Berkeley to try to answer some of these questions. And, you know, that's been really helpful too. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, in, these, in these streams that have so little flow, um, you know, just knowing, having some idea of what our targets are, you know, for fish to be able to survive has been important. Um, and one of the, you know, really interesting things that we've learned is that, um, they can, you know, juvenile salmonids can survive um, pretty well as long as we can keep the pools connected, as long as there's, you know, water flowing through the riffles into the pools that keeps the water quality high and the temperatures, you know, um, suitable for fish. Um, and so just knowing that has been helpful. You know, a lot of times with um, these projects that we try to do, you know, rainwater catchments, um, storage tanks, they're really expensive projects, and it's going to require a lot of them to, to make, you know, a big improvement in terms of flow. So it's hard to, 
you know, for funders, you know, it's hard to make an argument that, you know, putting just a little fraction of a CFS back into a stream is going to make a difference. Um, but we've been able to show that it can, you know, that, that, that little bit of water back into the stream, you know, can mean the difference between losing, you know, everything and allowing these fish to just hang on during the summer. So, kind of talking about this summer, <laughs> the other big thing that happened was that we're having a pretty aggressive fire season. Um, that's particularly true in Sonoma County. Um, I saw a map that showed that 21% um, of the coho and salmon steelhead reaches that are currently monitored by your program fall within the wall bridge fire perimeter. And so I'm wondering, you know, what is your program doing to understand the impacts of that fire on, you know, this really, it, obviously there's an overlap between critical habitat for fish and where this fire burns. So what are you guys learning from this and, um, and how might that translate into more, you know, protections or recovery actions for salmon and steelhead? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a crazy summer. Um, some of the the fires um, passed through some of the watersheds that we've been monitoring really intensively for, you know, over a decade. Um, so it'll be very, very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Mill Creek, one of our, um, the stream that we've been monitoring, you know, since the beginning of our program where we have full life cycle monitoring is one of those streams that got really hit hard in the headwaters. Um, so we'll be very well set up to um, track, um, you know, at a fairly high scale, you know, how this is impacting the fish populations. Um, we're still kind of um, assessing, you know, what things look like out there. Um, Sonoma County has a watershed task force um, that's really looking at um, the imp impacts of the fire, um, and there's a, a work group within that task force um, that we're a part of. Um, Nick Bauer from my team is on on this um, working group. Um, this work group is 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 looking at right now is just assessing um, some of the immediate impacts on um, the fire. They're they're going out and and just trying to um, identify um, areas that are at high risk of, of seeing um, a lot of sediment coming into the streams and, and marking those locations and, and um, informing others that might be equipped to, you know, take erosion measure, like immediate, you know, actions to try to reduce the amount of erosion that we see. But you know, in a lot of these watersheds, um, mill in particular, you know, it's it's steep banks. Um, a lot of the understory is is now gone. Um, there's layers of ash that, you know, no matter how much you do in the immediate um, future to, you know, prevent erosion, like we anticipate a lot of that is going to come into the stream. Um, this this work group has been putting out some pH meters, so you can look at, um, that's a measure of how much ash is in the stream. Um, it, the more ash that comes in, the more basic um, the pH, and that can be an impact on fish. So that's one of the things they're looking at. Um, and then, you know, we'll be looking at um, just survival of fish where, you know, where it's safe, we'll be continuing to do all of our monitoring work. And so we may be able to tease out some of the impacts in that way. But I think one of the ones, you know, that we're most concerned about is, you know, just a lot of the, the sediment um, coming into the streams and in the, in the, you know, with the first rains and that can have a, a really big impact on um, survival of the, um, the fish that are in reds, you know, the, the eggs and the, um, and the little elvins and, and fish hatching out, you know, if they get, they need to have well oxygenated um, gravel and, you know, if they get buried in sediment, they're not going to, they're essentially going to suffocate. So um, that's a concern. 
we're trying to, right. you know, find a silver lining in some of this and like, you know, just thinking about it. Um, you, you know, fire was part of our natural, you know, the natural process of, of everything. And, you know, it, it's a potential source of, of wood, you know, coho and steelhead love wood in streams. You know, that's, you know, when big trees fall into the stream, it helps create pools and shelter from high flows and it supports the invertebrate communities that provide food. So, you know, if there's opportunities, um, you know, uh, for trees that have, you know, burned, you know, to be incorporated, you know, like placed in the stream or let them fall into the stream, you know, that, you know, even though we might see some really harsh impacts in the very near future, like there could be some benefits in the long run if, you know, if we can allow for some of this wood recruitment, um, that's, that's a hard, you know, it's, it's always a hard thing. Like, you know, many of us live right on a Creek. And so there's, you know, um, concerns about, you know, large wood being in the stream and like coming loose and that, and, you know, those are, hard issues to tackle, um, but where it's possible to allow, you know, these large trees to, um, to fall into the stream, like that's a good thing for fish in the long run. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, I, it'll, it's great that you're getting all this data now because it'll be really interesting to see, see how things change over time. And like one of the things that I think about with those sediment loads that are coming through, which you're absolutely right. Like they, they have, especially immediately, they have this, this impact. They can have this pretty significant impact on um, spawning, the quality of spawning gravels and then on, on actually the, the survival of those reds. Um, but then there, we do have some streams um, that have, you know, incised over time and have cut down and disconnected from their floodplains. So, you know, with time, some of those pulses of sediment in some of these streams that have become more incised, there actually may be some benefit to that sediment coming in, um, even though it's going to have an impact initially. The long t- longer term, once that sediment gets sorted and routed, it, it could have you know, some benefit and the wood is definitely a a significant factor in um, improving habitat over time as well. It also, interestingly enough, as a restoration practitioner, it's um, what, what I'm learning about that, that, that fire is that it may actually provide um, some opportunities for more restoration to put wood in streams because a lot of land managers now have, um, these forested stands where there are um, hazard trees. And so there's opportunities to take those trees now and potentially even, you know, to excavate some trees with their root wads still intact and get that put in stream rather than have it, you know, just cut and mulched or made into firewood. Um, so, so, so as tragic as it is, and although there are going to be a lot of negative impacts, I think you're right. There is some silver linings. Like we may be able to get a lot of good work despite all of those hardships. Exactly. Transitioning a little, you know, it really seems to me that, um, you know, one of the kind of like things that is exemplary about your program um, is how, um how connected you are like to these kind of broad uh, collaborative partnerships. And so I'm wondering, you know, like from your perspective, like what's the benefit of being involved and in, in partnering with these, with these like diverse, um, you know, agency and non-agency working groups? I think it's, you know, it, it, it's the only way, that we're going to recover these Salmon populations. It, it just, it requires that we all work together. You know, us, us going out and, um, you know, identifying where the issues are and, and monitoring those populations, like that alone is, that's not going to, you know, solve anything. Um, and, and, and so, 
yeah, I mean, it's just a given that we need to be um, working together. You know, we're, we have a, a role of providing that information so that better decisions can be made about how to, you know, prioritize, um, you know, just precious restoration dollars um, and, you know, get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of, of you know, what projects we do. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and I think the scale of, um, of addressing salmon recovery is just so huge that it, it involves everyone, you know, it in, involves all of these different agencies and nonprofits and private landowners. I mean, in the Russian, um, you know, almost all of these streams flow through private property. And so every single, you know, person like needs to be involved um, if we're going to make a difference. Um, and it, it's even beyond just, you know, streamside landowners with this flow issue, you know, it's um, like we're, we're, we've depleted, you know, the whole water table and that's going to take participation on, you know, everyone to, to conserve water. And um, so, yeah, I, I think um, it's, I, I mean, I love working with all of these partners. I mean, every everyone involved is so passionate about, you know, reaching this common goal. Um, but it's also just it's it's a necessary um, thing to be able in order to restore these populations. Yeah, I mean, I, it's actually it's one of the things I really should commend you and your program on is that, you know, you do rely on a lot of landowner support and you work in an area where I'm sure there are lots of, you know, broad singular um, land ownerships, but, um, you know, my understanding is that you have to, because um, it's a slightly more populated area than say like where I live in Fort Bragg, um, you in order to do the monitoring work that you're doing, you have to get permission from so many different landowners to access their property. And clearly you've done an excellent job of, you know, developing trust and rapport with this diverse um, network of, of um, private citizens to be able to do the work you're doing. I mean, that's no small feat. So, so um, you know, that. Definitely, you definitely deserve a lot of applause for for the ability to do that. It's not simple. Um, yeah, thank you. I have to give a lot of credit to you know Sarah Nossman Pierce and and Nick Bauer. They you know they have so many you know just personal relationships with hundreds of landowners in our watershed, and um, you know and and that's what it takes you know to be able to to do this work. Yeah, it definitely does. You also have an excellent website. So you can talk a little bit about that, like the importance of outreach and how your program is approaching that. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for the compliments on the website. Um, Sarah, I, ha I have to give credit to Sarah Nossam and Pierce who, who organizes that and, and the rest of my team. Everyone on my team contributes um, towards um, our website and, you know, we've, we've also um, started doing a lot with social media early on with our outreach, you know, we would organize these landowner outreach meetings and, you know, we do presentations, you know, in schoolhouses, like, you know, in different watersheds and, and it's just, you know, it was really, we didn't get a lot of turnout, you know, it's just hard. People have their own lives and they don't want to go, you know, hear some talk in the middle of the week. So we really, um, after trying that approach, we really kind of rethought what we were doing and, and decided to just invest more in, in um, you know, our website and social media and just more, um, you know, we do an annual, um, like, landowner outreach update, you know, just to give um, some high-level results that we're seeing. We do a lot of just, like, personal communication with landowners, but that's just been a much better way to, to get information out. You know, we also used to just really focus, you know, we, we wrote a lot of technical reports. We still do that, but, but we try to take our reports and, you know, convert 
you know, the main points into a message that, that everyone can, can hear, you know, what are, what are the, you know, most important things that, you know, at different levels, you know, our, our partners who are seeking, you know, funding to do projects or, you know, students or the general public or, you know, streamside landowners, just trying to think about our audience and, and just, um, I don't know, get the information out in a little bit easier way to digest just so it's accessible to, to more people. Um, and that, that's just been a kind of a better approach. And we also have a great um, California Sea Grant, you know, has a great communications team. And so we've, we've worked a lot and relied on them to, you know, just improve our, our outreach and, and communications as well. Yeah, it's, it is really great. And, and for anyone that's listening that's interested in the Russian River or that lives in the Russian River watershed, I, I found it by Googling Sea Grant Russian River. Um, sir, what's the actual web address? I forget. It's kind of a long one, I think. It is. But kind how, of how can long, people like, find it? Yeah, I, I you know. <laughs> Just googling like Russian River coho salmon, you'll it'll it'll pop up. You know, it'll California Sea Grants Russian River Salmon program will pop up. And that concludes my interview with the extension specialist Mariska Obazinski from Sea Grants Russian River Salmon and Steelhead Monitoring Program. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in to another edition of the Ecology Hour on KZYX. That's Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We also stream live at kzyx.org. And don't forget to donate to KZYX during this quiet drive. Thanks, and good night.
Wash my soul. I will come to your river. Wash my soul. I will come to your river. Wash my soul again. Wash my soul. I will come to your river. Wash my soul again.